unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my being part of our Wednesday night service. We want to especially thank all of those that are viewing our, our broadcast on internet or on Facebook. Thank you for being part of our service. We're always glad to have you. We have several announcements before Brother Ken comes to conduct his class tonight. Adrian Edge and J.T. Beard had surgery this week and both are at home. Uh, Brenda Dawson also had surgery. She's in the Tupelo Hospital at this time, so we remember all of these. Sympathy is extended to Parker and uh, Emma Padgett and the death of their great-grandmother, Cleo Davis of Jumpertown. The food pantry and clothes closet will be open tomorrow. There will be a table in the foyer on Sunday, uh, beginning on Sunday, for, to shower baby Parker pounds with gifts. Parker is expected to arrive in October. Uh, his parents are Evan and uh, Tori Pounds, and uh, Stan and Wilda Pounds will be the great grand uh, will be the grandparents. Next week, our congregation will be sending ten people to the disaster relief center in nashville they will be leaving on sunday afternoon returning monday afternoon please remember this group as uh, they travel to nashville to help in the disaster relief efforts that uh, that they are engaged in if you would this week take one of the bulletins and read the article on the back it concerns several changes in leadership of our deacon role. So take time to read that this week and, and pray for these men as they accept some new challenges uh, as deacons in this congregation. Brother Kent. That relief effort, the 10 that are going on Sunday, was originally prompted by that Hurricane Laura. And subsequently, there's been another hurricane. And that hurricane went right over my house in Foley. So, Anita and I are going to go down there for our own relief effort and see what's happened with our house. We have a son who still lives down there, and about 1 a.m. this morning, as the storm was making landfall shortly, wind was howling and the waters are rising, he decided, maybe I should evacuate. And he left 
the house that he's, it's on stilts already, but the water was already coming up to the door. So he left and was wading in water up to his waist. Oh, to be young again, right? Fearless, daredevil. But I am happy to say that our prayers prevailed and he survived that, although his place flooded. So there are a lot of folks you, you probably know who live down in that area. And I've, I've seen pictures. And it's, it's a devastation. Um, so we have a lot of friends and church family down there that are really precious to us. So please, if you don't mind, remember us in prayer as we drive down there and kind of assess our, our own situation and take some supplies to some other folks. Let's sing a song together, okay? 744. 744, God's family. We're in a series, you know, about how to build a great church. That's what we want here in Boonville, a great church. Not, not necessarily because of something we've done, but we want to act in such a way that God's going to bless us in the church. So we're looking at different aspects of what it is to be a member here, functions that we're a part of. And tonight, we're going to find out that we must be a people of great families. So I think this song's appropriate. 744. We're part of the family.
Isn't it great to be in God's family? Amen. Yes, it is. Let's pray together and then we will begin our study. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing, the privilege that it is to be able to assemble here in the middle of this week to be encouraged, to be strengthened by our brethren. Lord, thank you for this time that we can study your word together. I pray that especially this study will help us to be the part that we need to play in your plan to make the Boonville Church a great church. And Father, tonight I pray that you will help us to appreciate just how important the family is, about how you view that. We thank you, Father, for the way that you have structured the family and of its identification with the church. Help us, Lord, to know that this is something special and in our relationships that we ought not just think about the blood relationship that we have as relatives physically, but to take that a step further and to enjoy a spiritual relationship. Father, I know we have families of all sorts. Some, some relationships are easier than others. But Father, as much as depends on us, I pray that you will help us to be that, that light that shines in our families, that, that important piece that's able to bring it all together, and especially to bring it together to your glory in your church. Lord, help me to communicate that as best I can and help, help our students tonight as we study your word that it will make the impression that you intended for it to. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, I want to string together three little verses of Scripture in order to try and make a point to lay kind of a baseline for us. I want to start with a verse that's found in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. In that passage, we're introduced to a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a man who had a mind for God. In fact, the text reminds us that his mind was so strong for God, his desire to please God was such that it affected not just him, but his whole household. His entire household, according to this text, feared God. Another text we want to add to that is the very next chapter. Now, we're kind of getting a picture of the same event told in two different stories. And so we're just piecing really the next step from chapter 11 and verse 14. There it's talking about Peter, and Peter's responsibility on this occasion was to speak the word that they needed to hear. They were going to tell Cornelius and his household the things that they needed to do for salvation. So let's gather what we have so far. Cornelius and his household are people who fear God. But that wasn't enough. They had a heart and a mind for God. They had a yearning for God. But Peter's going to tell them the next step. What it is they needed to do for their salvation. 
And then if you'll go back to chapter 10 at verse 48, the Bible tells us there that Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Okay, now I want to stop right there. And I want to do with this passage something that you might not have expected because what we see in this is a conversion of a household. That's true. And you say, well, he concluded by telling them, yeah, they were dutiful and they were believers and they feared God, but they had to be baptized to be saved. All that's true, but what I want to notice with you is Cornelius loved his family so much that he wasn't just interested in them fearing God, that in doing the will of God, which is the extension of fearing Him, of having an awe of Him, that there must be something that they need to do. He had already been instructed to wait for that news, and now it's come. He didn't keep it to himself. He loved his family. He loved his household, his house, so much that he shared that with everybody else. Now, what I also want to notice is, you know from the Scriptures, like Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord adds to the church those who are saved. In that case, he added daily those who were being saved. So that household, when they obeyed the gospel, not only did they benefit from being in a household where there's a man leading that house that wants everybody to be saved, but as a natural result of their salvation... Well, you know, they were added by the Lord to the church. Now, what I notice there is what some scientists would describe as being a mutualistic, symbiotic relationship. Now, a mutualistic, symbolic, uh, symbiotic relationship is one that's seen in nature, typically. Usually what you have is two organisms, animals, that are from different species. But they interact in such a way as to benefit one another. That's the symbiotic relationship. The mutual part of it is that each party benefits from the relationship. Now I'll give you an example. There is a bird called an oxpecker. An oxpecker is almost always associated with one of two animals a rhinoceros, or a zebra. And if you'll think, anytime you've seen some of those nature shows and you see a rhinoceros, don't you always see one of those birds on its back? Or you see zebras, they're running around. They'll take off, the birds will hop off, and then as soon as that zebra settles down, those birds will alight on the back again. Those birds eat parasites of all kinds, especially ticks. So the rhinoceros and the zebra benefit from the oxpecker basically living its life on its back because that oxpecker becomes basically a pest control. The bird benefits because it gets a steady diet of parasites. Well, also, that bird, when it senses danger, will fly straight up in the air and start making a terrible noise. And so both the rhinoceros and the zebra benefit not just from the pest control, but also from security. A mutualistic, symbiotic relationship. Two parties benefiting from the relationship. That's what we have 
in the relationship between the church and families. A great church builds great families. But also, the flip of that is true. Great families build great churches. I see that as Cornelius so much wants his family to do right in the sight of God, but given the instruction of God, he immediately acts. And then as a result of that, well, you know, the church is blessed. In fact, aren't we still blessed by the description of the conversion that takes place there? Cornelius is that first Gentile convert. All of us most likely can relate to that blessing. You are a part of some family. It may be a a family that's been here for many generations. It may be a family that's broken, but you're part of a family. And as part of that family and a child of God, there are two things that ought to be on your mind. Number one, of course, is the church family and my salvation, but also... I should be concerned about those who are my blood relatives, those who I'm closest to, as Cornelius was. With an opportunity there, through blood relation, to win somebody for Jesus Christ. In fact, I kind of have the idea that one key to evangelizing the world begins right there. It begins in the home. So what I want to do is build a structure with us tonight. I'm thinking about the church in particular, but I'm also thinking about its component parts. So I want to think first about Jesus Christ as being the foundation. Christ is the foundation. You have that statement made point blank in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. So you will know that there is no other foundation which can be laid. That foundation is... Jesus Christ. In fact, he says no other foundation can be laid. (laughs) Jesus is it. Now, many passages of Scripture point to the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father, but this text is one of them, and bringing in the idea of his unique relationship to the church. Question, upon what is the church founded? Well, you know, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. It was the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in Matthew chapter 16. Here again is that same formula. No other foundation can any man or any one lay than that which is laid. And it is this, Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about Jesus as the foundation and his relationship to the church, and then of families in their connection... I immediately, maybe you do too, but I immediately think of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord is, or for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. 
For we are all members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now you see the Apostle Paul by inspiration doing two things. Number one, he talks about the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. But then he also, at the same time, remember, mutualistic, symbiotic relationship. At the very same time, he talks about the beautiful relationship that is to exist between a husband and his wife. And that relationship is such that it is bound together in love. So the husband is loving his wife so much that he would die for her, and the wife is respecting her husband. In response to the love that he gives, she respects, she honors him in his position. That kicks back to the notion of her submission to him as leader in that relationship, which again is the same relationship that Christ and the church enjoy. Christ is the head of the church, but then the church in response respects Jesus. How do we do that? Well, in a similar fashion to what Cornelius was trying to do, and that is by fearing God, by doing as he commands. Now, here's the problem with that. If I say I'm a part of that, or I want to be a part of that, I'm in a family, I want to be a part of the church, and I, I want to experience Christ as the foundation, but if I'm not really living my life in reflection of building my life on that foundation, then I'm headed in the wrong direction. And many today are strapped with the desires and, and the yearning after worldly things. You know that this is true. How easily people are misled or, or drawn away from the truth in Jesus Christ to a worldview that is very much in opposition to that of Jesus. John warned of that in 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, isn't that pretty simple? If I will do the word of God, if I, if I will serve God, I'm going to live forever. But if I pursue the things of the world, I'm going to perish Jesus got to the heart of it as he was wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives an illustration in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. It had to do with whether or not, in hearing his sermon, you were actually going to enact the life-changing teachings that he laid out there. So Jesus says, pretty simply... He who hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it stood, and here's the reason, because it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them shall be like a man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, what was the difference between a house standing and a house falling? You say, well, the difference is 
that the house that stands is on the rock. The house that falls is on the sand. Yeah, that's technically true, but take it back a step further. What kind of life is the life that is founded on the rock that's not going to fall? And that is the life that says, Lord, I hear you, and then I'm also going to do. I'm also going to do what you tell me to do. If we're going to have a great church that's the result of great families, then the church and the family needs to have Christ as its foundation. Now, let's keep building this building. Got to have some walls there. So I'm going to suggest to you that purity, purity is the wall. Here's an interesting text. It's actually, I'm thinking, it's probably one as you're reading through the narrative in the book of Luke. You might even miss it. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 6. It's giving us introductory information, especially directing us to the birth of John the Baptist. But in that text, it, it introduces Zacharias, his father, and Elizabeth. And it's with reference, this text says, to both of them. Well, what is it about both of them? The text says that both of them were righteous before God and that they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord and then it puts this word there. Blameless. Now what I mean when I say, well, you're just kind of reading the narrative and you may brush over it, it's just kind of giving us a description of them and sometimes, you know, we want to get to the more fun stuff and so we just kind of breeze through that. Do not miss this because you may wonder, well, why would God choose a woman, let's say like Mary, to be the mother of Jesus? Why would God choose out of all the people that he could have chosen, Zacharias and Elizabeth, to be parents of John the Baptist who is going to prepare the way of the Lord? I'll tell you why he chose them. Because they were blameless. Now don't miss the significance of this point. This is given by inspiration. This is not Luke just kind of writing along and says, hey, let me give you my opinion about these guys. That is not what's happening in this text. What's happening in this text is we are learning what God thinks of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And what God thinks is, here is a couple, a husband and a wife, both of them, not just the husband who's faithful in attendance, blah, 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 or the wife who's just carrying along the husband. Boy, she's a good one, but he's... No, these two, both of them were righteous. Both of them walked in the commandments and the ordinances of God. Both of them were blameless. God couldn't bring accusation against these two. Were they perfect? I, I you know, they're humans... I'm sure in their relationship, maybe they had a fuss once in a while. <laughs> but I know as regards the commands of God, of their heart for God, God could not in any wise say, I find you at fault, blameless. You look at your relationship, not just with your wife, but your kids too, 
If you're a grandparent, maybe grandkids. If you're a great-grandparent, maybe great-grandkids. When you look at those relationships, would you say blameless, pure? Let me tell you something. Purity is a big deal with God. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. But indeed, you have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, sometimes when we talk about baptism, and rightly so, we talk about how the person is buried, and then we leave that old man of sin behind. Well, that's what he's talking about right here. When you became a child of God, you put to death the old man. And when you put to death the old man, you were supposed to leave him there in the grave. You know, how many people do you know? Oh, they bury, but then they just want to go and dig him back up, right? Uh, oh, boy, I remember how I used to be. Woo, oh, I sowed my wild oats and just so proud of it. Really? No. No, it's shame. In fact, that's not me anymore. That's the old man. Now, why would Paul have to write to the Ephesians about that? Well, you know, they were brought up in a very worldly environment, very sensual, sinful. They need to be reminded, wait a minute, when you became a child of God, you put that off. When you came out of that water, you were pure. You had been forgiven of your sins. And so don't dig up that old man that's dead. Don't be dragging around the corpse of your old life. You're new, you're pure, remain pure. You didn't learn that. You learned Christ. That is a pure life. In fact, I, we have to go so far as to say, it's, it's, not just, it's not just a good idea, or it's not just one of those suggestions of Scripture's. The Bible says that that is God's will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you know God then you're going to turn your back on that. You're going to follow the will of God. Again, remember Cornelius? He feared God. He wanted to please God. Remember old Zacharias and Elizabeth? Blameless. Why does God want us to be that way? Why does He insist on us being pure? Well, it's because of, well, doesn't just say it in this passage. This is actually a quotation of Old Testament scriptures. So this idea has been around a long time. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, verse 16, God says, be holy 
for I am holy. Well, in verse 15, he said, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Blameless. Ken, remind me why that's important. I mean, we can be hard-headed, so let me just hit this again. You're different now. You had your sins washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus. You came out pure, free from that sin. God's called you to a holy life. He says, and this is important, be holy. Why be holy, Lord? Be holy for or because I am holy. Don't miss this. God says you need to be holy because you're in a relationship with me. And if you really are in a relationship with me, understand I'm holy. So you be holy because I am holy. Ken, why is that important? Here's an old text. It's Amos 3 and verse 3. It's actually a rhetorical question. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, the implied answer is, well, of course not. <laughs> you know, if I say, I'm headed to Cincinnati, and the other guy says, well, I'm headed to South Florida, can they travel together? No. God says, I'm holy. But I ask the question, now, what are you? If you're holy, then you can go on that journey together. If you are not holy, if you are impure, if you're not blameless, you can't go with him. So let's lay our foundation with Jesus, the Christ. That's going to give us a solid foundation. He's the only foundation, by the way. And then let's build our walls up with purity. Let's be sure that we are blameless. And then finally, let's, let's put a ceiling on it. Let's let love be that ceiling. In 1 Peter chapter 3, interesting description that's given there. Wives, be submissive of your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct with fear. Do not let your appearance be merely outward, arrange the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, being, being respectful, honorable, knowledgeable. Dwell with them with understanding. You've got to know your wife. And he says if you don't know your wife, the result is catastrophic. Your prayers can be hindered. I always thought that verse 6 maybe was one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, Anita is smiling under her mask because she knows it is one of my favorite. And if you read that again, you'll see why. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I love being called Lord around the house. Just kind of puts a little extra bump in your step. Now, if you think that's true... <laughs> 
in any event, I, I, I mentioned that simply to say that in regard to that tradition that's described there, he was a wife who was submissive to her husband. Why is she submissive? Remember what Ephesians 5 described for us? Wait a minute. I respect him because he loves me. And he loves me so much that he would what? He would die for me. And not only that, but he is understanding of me so that, so that his prayers will not be hindered. Verse 7. Love is what brings all that together. And did you notice that when he was... He uses six verses to describe the wife's situation. She is not trying to win her husband over by the way she dresses. She's trying to win him over for the Lord by the person that she is on the inside. She respects, she loves him, and in return, he respects and loves her. That will influence him, most likely, to seek the Lord. Love creates a ceiling or an enclosure or a safe place because it has that sense of mutual respect and endearment. Now, don't think that that is always a, a natural thing. Paul told Timothy, in, or told Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said, you need to tell the older women to tell the younger women some things. The older women are tell the younger to love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Why would you have to tell somebody to love their husband and love their children? Maybe because in some cases that doesn't come naturally. Uh, maybe these were arranged marriages, or, or maybe the circumstances with the children have broken down. I, I don't know why that is, but he found it necessary for folks to be reminded. Sometimes it just doesn't come naturally to us to behave in the way that we ought to behave. I know that's true generally as a spiritual model because there had to be a transformation in us to begin with, right? Uh, we have a worldly mind or disposition in us, Romans chapter 12, and Paul, talking to Christians in that setting, says, Look, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let, let God change you. Change you to the extent that love in that relationship with your spouse and your children and your relatives in the home and the family becomes the predominant emotion. Paul kind of, again, putting the ceiling on it, describes love this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in verse 8, he starts off by saying, love never fails. Listen to that. Love never fails. 
When he concluded that text, he said, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these, the one that never fails, is love. If we're going to enjoy a mutualistic, symbiotic relationship between the home and the church, love has to prevail in both places. And then, it just seems to me, there will be a natural flow, be a natural connection between the two. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm sure of. That through the church, the home is blessed. Okay? So when I see the church and hear the, hear the sermons and the lessons that go forth and, and I'm challenged, I understand, okay, there are goals in this life that I want to meet. But then, then as I'm pursuing those goals in the church, I realize, wait a minute, that there's a parallel to that in my relationship in the family. And then as I'm in the church, I'm receiving instruction. I, I understand, wait, also, look at all these associates that I have. You know, I, I don't normally live in the circuit of so-and-so. I don't normally meet them in my, in my course of life. But because of the church, I'm associated with all sorts of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And so that blesses my life. And then I think, well, now that's true in the church, but that also, also is true in my family. And so in these relationships that have so many different dynamics, I learn, I, I cross between the two, uh, learn how to navigate those relationships, those, those associates that I have. And then I think about the stability I ought to see in the church. Since we have this solid foundation, Christ, and we have this one truth that we're adhering to, then I, I have direction in my life, I, something I can lean on and, isn't that true in our families? It should be true in our families that there are people who are our rocks, the people that I can lean on. And then finally, in the church, we all kind of like flies around a light, think about our hope of heaven someday. And to me, I think that's one of the beautiful things being a Christian in a family. And that is, not only am I going to enjoy these relationships now, but these relationships are going to go with me all the way to eternity. I, I think the Lord has created something that every family can benefit from in the church. But I also, in this mutualistic, symbiotic relationship, understand that the church is also blessed itself by the family. The church is a blessing to the family. The family is a blessing to the church. What I do know is that if we're going to be a great church, we're going to have to have great Christian families because great families build great churches. Let's have a prayer together, and then we're going to dismiss our parents, so that they can go get their kids, and then just wait around a minute or two, and then the rest of us can leave. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the blessing of the day that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for this time in particular that we could study your word together. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us, help us to be able to thrive in the church, and thrive in, in a similar way in our families. Help, help these relationships that are so important to us 
be eternal in nature. Not just thinking about this life now, but forward thinking to the time that we can be together forever and ever. Some of the greatest relationships we will ever have we find in our physical families. Help that to be true for us, Lord, in the church as well. And help us to be able to navigate the dynamics that exist between the church and the family. Help parents, husbands, and wives to love each other. Help fathers and their children to be in a love relationship. Mothers and their children to be in a loving relationship. Help grandparents to kind of be the the backbone and, and the example of love throughout many generations. And even if we were to live to be great grandparents and even beyond, I pray that our faithfulness to you will build up our families. And then as a natural result, because of the close connection that exists, that our church will be great too. Thank you, Father, for all that you've already done in making much of that true. And bless us, Lord, as we do our part as individuals to have great families, to bless a great church. In Jesus' name, amen.